and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Lost in Space, Chapter 1 of the Friends Travaganza. Hello and welcome to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and co-host Julio. Julio, it seems as though you and I have kind of gotten into a nice rhythm here of our podcast of uh, trading off kind of, I don't want to say passion projects, but you know we, we leave it to each other to figure out where we're going next. And where we're going next is the Friends Stravaganza, which we've kind of explained already. But to bring any and all listeners up to date here, explain to us what we're embarking on here. I, I think the title says it all. If, if you're familiar with the TV show Friends, uh, which ran for, what, 10 seasons, I think? Then, then this is what this is about. Friends has six main characters. So the Friends Travaganza is going to be made up of six episodes, one for each character, one for each actor. There is... Uh, Matt LeBlanc, Joey, uh, Matthew Perry, Chandler, David Schwimmer, Ross, Courtney Cox, Monica, Lisa Kudrow, Phoebe, and Jennifer Aniston, Rachel. These guys were incredibly successful on TV, but when they tried to branch out into movies, the results were were mixed. Uh, They varied. (laughs) Yes, uh, so we thought it would be fun to to just okay we we didn't think I thought it would be fun <laughs> to, to pick some some movies from their filmographies and uh, and have some fun with that here on the main feed and also with some extra content on Patreon. Uh, so we're gonna be talking a lot about the cast of Friends, the main cast of Friends, over the next uh, three months. Two episodes per month dedicated to the Friends Travaganza. If you're not jiving with this idea, don't worry, because our bonus episodes are still going to be picked by patrons, and I kind of get the feeling that they're going to have nothing to do with friends. Which is fine. It'll be a nice, a healthy and balanced diet. So, uh, first at bat, Matt LeBlanc, Joey. And then when I turned around, she was gone. Oh, Ross. I know, but hey, in my defense, I I just found out that condoms are only like 97% effective. What? I gotta go find her. Oh, hey, oh, hold on. Are you serious? So you just like 3% of the time, they don't even work? Huh? They should put that on the box. Evidently, they do. What? Alex, was he your favorite friend? Uh, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really watch Friends in real time. And it was basically a show I just caught in syndication when I was younger. And 
It ended in 2004, so I still would have been in high school. But yeah, I'd, I remember like enough of watching it to remember thinking this is not fun anymore. <laughs> you you had to be there, man. <laughs> and even in high school, you know, years before I was graduated college and the crushing reality of life set in on me, I remember watching that show and thinking, do any of these people have jobs? Like what? <laughs> What do they do? <laughs> but where are would, the minorities? <laughs> I would be absolutely ridiculous, unrealistic, and just flat out wrong, daft, to act like it wasn't a huge, it didn't have a huge impact on pop culture. And it was certainly, you know, it's a lot like Cheers. I think we'll get to a friend's retrospective when we wrap this up here. I don't think it changed. Mm hmm. You know, it wasn't Seinfeld. It wasn't The Office. It didn't, like, have this lasting impact on its medium. But it was an insanely popular show that drew a lot of viewers and, you know, went on as long as it did with all these ridiculous storylines that just kept, like, changing, running changes just because people wanted to see it. And that a huge part of that is the six people you outlined. I mean... Mm -hmm. I think even more so than Seinfeld, you would say that Friends is like the peak of white people shit on television, <laughs> broadcast television. Yes. I mean, and and we ate it up for a while. I, I, I know it's a, uh, it's falling from grace, uh, you know, like with seeing it with modern eyes, you know, the 2020 sensibility, even like before 2020, probably like 2000s sensibility. You can see the shortcomings, like they're a lot more glaring. Uh, you know, like the the whiteness of it all, and just the the uh, privilege of it all. It, but I think, in especially if you kind of grew up with it or were were into it when it was happening, it's a lot easier to kind of also still tune into what's funny about it. And uh, there are some episodes that are really clever, like the way they're written. And if you can look past the shortcomings, they're like they still work. And you're right. I mean, it's it's about the cast because they. They got six people that worked really well together, and uh, they were yeah they worked so well together they figured out a way to hold up the network for more money. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> but but then you know it's like, what happens when they're not together anymore? And, and you know they they should off. We'll get to the to the Jennifer Aniston episode down this path, but I I think that you know she's the, probably on one end of the spectrum as far as like how many movies she's made, regardless of quality, and then. Maybe on the lower end of the spectrum might be it's probably between Matthew Perry and David Schwimmer. Maybe even Matt LeBlanc. I think like the guys in general have done less movies. Uh, well, as we'll get to though, David Schwimmer has excelled behind the camera. Right. He he figured out the, the loophole. It's like life after friends doesn't necessarily have to be in front of the camera. He found a he found the cheat code. Not so much Matt LeBlanc. Uh Patrons got to hear our full like breakdown where we're trying to figure out which movies to to do both on the main feed and on the after hours. And uh, it was pretty slim pickings for some actors like Matt LeBlanc because uh, I don't think, if, from what I remember, he doesn't have a single fresh movie on the tomato meter. And some of his rotten ones are almost rarities as far as like whether you can find them or like people know they exist. <laughs> Oh, plenty of people know what we're talking about today exists, though. This is exactly a, that's why this a, was a good pick. <laughs> a fairly infamous uh, entry. Yeah, 
Yeah, Lost in Space is it, it it stands out in his filmography. And I was afraid because I hadn't watched it, you know, since it came out, and I was afraid that maybe it was going to turn out to be not quite uh, a good showcase of Matt LeBlanc's talents away from from friends. Uh but no, he's he's very much like a a co-protagonist here. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the like the first character we see in it we get to see that he's like this badass and he also is the he has the the love story in it and it's it's certainly a movie that yeah i i don't know if he was billed first was william hurt billed first uh william hurt was not in friends so i it wouldn't surprise me if matt leblanc got first billing well whatever the case it's not his movie it's the story of william hurt's character that being said yeah joey gets like half the screen time yeah yeah now, Alex, I, I like the show Friends. I've, I've watched most of it, uh, several seasons more than once. But still, I wouldn't say that I am the, the ultimate Friends connoisseur. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that by now we've kind of established that you know even less about the show than I do. I mean, you're familiar with it, but you, you're no expert. And we do need... Confirmed. Confirmed, <laughs> yes. Uh, but we do need an expert. I, I, I thought it would be a good idea to actually bring somebody that is a hardcore devotee of the show, just to provide a little bit of guidance for for listeners who are not familiar with the show at all. So here it is, our friend Billy from the We Watch a Thing podcast. He very uh, generously has volunteered a little bit of his time to give us some uh, brief clips where he explains uh, what each friend's character is like. In this case, this is the Joey Tribbiani episode. So he's going to tell us a little bit about Joey. Billy, take it away. Hello, dear listeners of The Contrarians. This is B-Dizzle from We Watch It Thing, here to score you a little bit on the cast of Friends. First up, we've got Joey Tribbiani, as played by Matt LeBlanc. Played superbly, might I add. Joey is arguably one of the least connected friends in the series. His only real connection is that he was Chandler's roommate, and he kind of just fell into that. Joey begins the show as a struggling actor, and over the course of the ten seasons, really emerges as what I'm going to call the king of the show. He is absolutely the best friend. He cares the most about his friends. He cares the most about sandwiches, which is something that I deeply relate to. Is he a little bit of a sleazeball? Yes. He's known best, of course, for his catchphrase, how you doing? Which I don't do half as well as he does. Despite this, he actually only hooks up with one of the other friends, and I'll reveal that when we get there. In fact, even though the show as a whole has a bit of a reputation of being kind of a kissing cousins where everybody makes out with everybody, that's kind of not really the case. The show opens itself to a lot of different guest stars. Joey's longest relationship from memory is with Elle McPherson, who becomes his roommate for a little while. Joey shows many skills throughout the show. He builds furniture, he stars in a musical rendition of Dr. Freud's life. There's really nothing the man can't do. Joey is my number one ranked friend. I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about Joey Tribbiani, and I hope you're enjoying The Contrarians as much as I do. All right. First of all, to any and all new listeners, thank you so much for joining us. It's quite possible the tag of just friends will attract new people. It does have its following. All these years later, people are mad nostalgic for it, so much so that you know it just seems like every year or so, rumors swirl of its return. So 
If you are here by chance of being a Friends fan, thank you so much for joining us. And if you're a new listener for any other reason, we thank you all the same. Lost in Space fan. That's yeah, possible, too. To our returning listeners, you know we got love for you all. Give us just a second here while we explain what it is we do here on our show. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. What we'll do is find a film on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And what we'll do is bring that film down to size, talk about maybe some overrated acting, uh, plot holes, played out tropes, bad direction, bad cinematography, what have you. You know, things that we believe that critics might have just swept under the rug. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated. We usually shoot for about 30% and below uh, those nasty green splotches, rotten films, and you guessed it. Make a case for the film's positive merit, maybe some good acting, bold storytelling choices, uh, some courageous screenwriting, all in an attempt to say, you know, this shit is subjective. You can be as over the moon as you want to be about something or as cynical if you set your mind to it as you can be. Uh, and also that Rotten Tomatoes doesn't always tell the whole story. You know, if you see a movie with 40%, people might be inclined to think that's bad. And as we've proved time and time again, that isn't always the case. But whatever we do in the first half, it doesn't necessarily reflect how we really feel about the movies we're discussing. And Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about uh, the film du jour, the film of the day, they just have to tune into the second part of the episode. That's correct. Uh, part two of uh, every episode is the real talk portion. And that's where we tell you how we feel regardless of the Run Tomatoes score. Uh, in this case, uh, I've seen Lost in Space once a long time ago. Alex, have you seen it before this time? I have not, but I certainly remember the uh, promotion and the hype. Yeah, I, I think that in a way, it's almost like both of us were watching it for the first time. And uh, we haven't really talked about it. So this is one of those instances of real talk where not only does the audience get to find out how we feel about the movie, but also we get to find out how the other one feels about it, uh, which is exciting. Uh, so, Julio, before we get into the actual movie here, and obviously the star of the day, Matt LeBlanc, what's your familiarity? What's your relationship with the OG Lost in Space? I believe it was it was only a couple years in the 60s that the television show ran, correct? Uh, yes, and I'm old, Alex, but I'm not that old. So I, I didn't watch it as it was airing live. I, I'm pretty sure it aired like they they had reruns in Peru and it was it was a black and white show and I was a little kid so it didn't really catch my attention even by my kid standards uh, back in the late '80s it seemed like it was a little too campy and mind you I, like I grew up with the with the '60s Batman and Robin show so that's campy but uh, one it's in color two it's about superheroes so it's a little more up my alley. So I remember trying to watch Lost in Space because in, in theory, it sounded like a cool thing. You know, there was a robot, they were out in space, uh, but I I just, I remember it couldn't catch my, it couldn't keep my attention. So I would always just bail before even an episode was over. So in a way, I kind of walked into this movie as a, as a neophyte. Uh, how about you? I think the majority of my knowledge of Lost in Space comes from the simpsons i know at least for a period of time they must have had a writer who was a big fan because there was a lot of references to it uh not a lot but a handful that were memorable um yeah you know it's syndication so i caught episodes here and there i remember watching a few when i was a kid the robot has such a very uh memorable and very distinctive 
exclusive looks about it. So, yeah, I know the robot. Like I remember the visual of the robot, and then uh, Danger Will Robinson Danger was like something that I like. I I, I recognize the catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't remember any like the character names or what wasn't familiar with it at all. But uh, I would be curious if anyone's listening. This is a big Lost in Space fan. Uh, it seems like you know there was just a critical panning of this, but I'm curious what the diehards of the show felt about it because it, you know, the 60s shows in general seem to have a general uh, uh, air of camp and a certain campy quality to them and levity to that this doesn't really seem to have. So I'm curious what the the diehards thought of it. You're telling me that they they took one of the main actors from one of the biggest comedies in the 90s and they put him in a serious movie? He gets a few funny lines though. <laughs> um, let me uh, let me hit you with some rotten quotes, Alex, and then we can we can jump into this this yeah, Contreras corner. Twenty eight percent. It's uh, it's got to be a minefield of uh, negative reviews. The the best kind of minefield, the one that's quotable. Let's start with Desson Thompson from Washington Post, who says a galactic slump of a movie that stuffs its travel bag with special effects but forgets to pack the charm. What do you think is the ratio here in uh, Lost in Space? Ratio of uh, practical versus CGI? It's a decent meld. Uh, I was thinking about that while I was watching it because there are some of the part like there's a lot of sets that they move through that are physical sets. At the same time, you know. Every external shot of the ship is CG, and um, there's even some parts where they're just, like, parts they don't need to be standing in front of green screens, and then Blarf or Smarf or whatever the <laughs> little alien critter's name is, that that's obviously completely CG. But the robot is practical, right? It, lo- it looked practical. Oh, yeah, yeah, the robot was, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Balance. It just had a fat guy in it controlling it. Uh, Rob Blackwelder from Splice Wire says every action sequence in this grossly overproduced movie looks like designers from Nintendo were creative consultants there's nothing wrong with that if you like Nintendo and I do that's that's a good thing you're more of a Sega guy aren't you oh yeah always have been Sega to Sony we're we're a Twizzlers family (laughs) Uh, Dennis King from Tulsa World says, Lost in Space isn't so much a movie version of an old TV show as a mind-blowing multimedia video game that threatens to blast audiences into submission with bleeps and blips, fiery explosions, clever gizmos, and ear-splitting sound effects. That sounds like a good time at the movies, Alex. Yeah, I've yet to hear something that's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, Leah Rosen from People Magazine says, These Robinsons should have gone into therapy, not space. Why not both? Jesus. That's uh, pretty presumptuous and pretty bold of you to say of this family. <laughs> yeah, just diagnosing them right away. But that's it, Alex. Take us into Contrarian's Corner. 28%. New Line Cinema had plans for a massive spring blockbuster. They went all in with the toys, the promotion, the marketing. I think there might even have been Happy Meals. I just remember like this movie being everywhere. I didn't see it when I was a kid, uh, probably because it didn't make much of a splash after it was released. But as New Line looked to who was going to helm this when they were putting it together, they said, 
get me the director of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. That's right. <laughs> I want Hopkins on the case. Julio, you ever seen The Dream Child? I, I stopped with number three. And then I, I skipped ahead to uh, New Nightmare. It's not good. New so Nightmare I've heard. is good. Yeah. I'm pretty sure The Dream Child, it has a very memorable cover of Freddy um, putting one of his blades up to his mouth, like, shh, baby sleeping type thing. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's the one, though, where he uh, feeds the girl until she dies. And, like her cheeks blow out really big and stuff. Yes, Greta. She falls. <laughs> Falls asleep at this uh, fancy dinner party and Chef Freddy just overstuffs her until she dies. That is who New Line Cinema in 1997 was like. <laughs> we need the sexy guy from Friends and the director from The Dream Child and we'll put it all together. And fuck it. Get me William Hurt. <laughs> God, yeah. Daddy William Hurt in here with his kind of shaggy hair and beard. <laughs> uh, and screenwriter Akiva Goldsman who coming into this was the writer on Batman Forever and A Time to Kill, as well as Batman and Robin. Those were the three films he did coming into this. Obviously, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, as poorly received as they were critically, both made coin at the box office. Mm -hmm. So I think there was some good intention there. Since then, Mr. Goldsman has done A Beautiful Mind, I, Robot, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend, Angels and Demons, Winter's Tale, Transformers, The Last Night. How many of those oh, are no. there, man? <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, he was kind of like moving up as far as, uh, I wouldn't even say artsy projects, but, you know. Peaks and valleys. Yeah, yeah. Also, you'll appreciate Star Trek Discovery, uh, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, all things that he's written for. So we had kind of a mixed bag going into this, but Friends was in its uh, fourth season at the time. It was incredibly hot. William Hurt, always a big name. Heather Graham uh, was definitely coming into her own at that point. She would have been, I believe it was that 98 or 99 when she was the um, opposite Austin Powers, Mike Myers and Austin Powers. Right. So this is post Boogie Nights, right? Yes, Boogie Nights was 97. 97, yeah. So we had the parts all together, and it was time to, I guess, reignite interest in a franchise that really uh, only had a few years on television, and I guess there was thought to be some mileage in it. And that was seen by New Line as, let's do some crazy CG effects for the time. And Julio... Uh, I got to be honest, especially here in the beginning, I was like, these look pretty good for 1998, the external shots of the ship and all the flying around in space. And do you think that the movie going public globally was ready for this type of visual effects based movie? You know, we're we're a year out from the Phantom Menace where a lot of things, you know, changed. And, you know, I think part of the thing we're going to set out here to determine is why this movie did so poorly. Right. And that's what I want to lead off with is, do you think we just weren't ready for it? I think I think it's a combination of things because the main my main thought when this movie started was that even as somebody who is not overly familiar with the show, I could tell that it was not like the show at all, and that's not a bad thing as far as like the movie goes. But I think that if you're a Lost in Space fan, then that's gotta throw you off. Like 
I think that even for for its time, like the the that show never looked on the curve, like it never looked as good as this opening sequence does. Like with this movie, it opens like and it looks like a like Star Trek or Star Wars. It's just like a big space battle, and that's not Lost in Space. Like when I think Lost in Space, I think like the big clunky robot, the little kid, and the old guy. That's like it, you know running through the desert. So. I think that that might have been part of it, like a culture shock to to part of the audience that came to watch Lost in Space, mainly because it was called Lost in Space, and it uh-huh. you know it appealed to their their childhood or their nostalgia or whatever. And then the other thing is that it's just uh, this thing with the '90s where people were taking so many chances, but that meant that you know sometimes they just they swung for the fences and and didn't hit anything. Uh, because honestly, as I was watching this movie. The special effects, the tone, the level of talent in front of the camera. I kept thinking of the Mummy, which we also did on this show a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, you know what I'm talking about, like that, that that sort of like genre movie that doesn't take itself super seriously, but it takes itself seriously enough to have like good production value <laughs> and respect its audience, but it's not full on camp. But for some reason, you know, it works with a sort of like adventure fantasy thing like the mummy and when it was applied to the science fiction genre people just rejected it so is it just that it's uh if it's not like a big name brand like star wars or star trek we just reject this kind of approach to to science fiction i don't know i mean what do you think it's certainly i don't think that because uh two of the top grossing movies top 10 grossing movies of 1998 were godzilla and dr doolittle so definitely wasn't had you know we were definitely hungry for remakes and expansions upon pre-existing franchises i would argue Uh, that godzilla i I don't know about the og dr doolittle but godzilla kind of kept in it was faithful to what i think the audience is expected from a godzilla movie there was a big lizard it's also amazing. Titanic was the number one grossing movie of 1998, despite the fact it came out in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a big part of it was Joey from Friends, and you know we're in the fourth season, so we're we're in the weeds with Friends at this point. Uh, I'm not sure we were ready to see him as a badass, and I think that honestly, there's a, a big timing factor of it. You know, Titanic I just mentioned came out. Uh, four or five months before this, we were already we were already on a ship that went awry, you know, just a few <laughs> months earlier. I don't know if it was time for it, but it's definitely an interesting combination, an interesting a cosmic gumbo of parts that pulled this together. And you know, they new line, uh, Akiva Goldsman and Stephen Hopkins tried to make this its own thing. It's this new science fiction thriller franchise, and it just it wasn't to be. Uh, the film itself uh, takes place in 2058. As we learn, Earth will soon be uninhabitable. I always have a hard time with that word. Due to uh, irreversible effects of pollution and ozone depletion. I think this movie may become a documentary before too long. <laughs> in an effort to save humanity, the United Global Space Force sends Professor John Robinson, his wife, Marine, daughter, daughters, excuse me, Judy and Penny, and young prodigy son Will on the spaceship Jupiter 2 to complete construction of a hypergate over the planet Alpha Prime, which will allow the population of Earth to be instantly transported and populate the new planet. Penny rebels by breaking curfew. Will's prize-winning science experiment involving time travel goes largely unnoticed by John. This is all to set the stage for tensions in the family. 
Global Sedition, a mutant terrorist group, assassinates the pilot of Jupiter 2, who is replaced by hotshot fighter pilot Major Don West. I did not catch his name as Don West. Don West <laughs> is a legendary professional wrestling announcer who worked for Total Nonstop Action in the, the mid to late 2000s, and he was incredible. There absolutely in this episode will somewhere be an insert of a Don West call. I'm going to tell you something, people. You put this man on a pedestal. You do. You put him here. But I found out about this man. You're nothing but a selfish prick. Yeah, Matt LeBlanc, the opening scene, like I said, we see he defies orders to save, you know, his uh, one of his brothers in arms. And he's a, a hot shot, as is mentioned there. But he, he's not happy about this. I think I think you have a point when you were talking about how like audiences were not ready to see Joey as a badass because I mean we've made the comparison before the how uh, you know in in France like Joey's intellect like kept growing like smaller and smaller as the seasons went in and you made the comparison to Kevin from the office how he also gets like dumber as the seasons go and <laughs> and it's like yeah I mean imagine if tomorrow there was a sci-fi space adventure feat, uh, where where Kevin from the office is a badass like you wouldn't buy it you wouldn't be able to take it seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's the movie starts off with that. It's like I appreciate from a filmmaking perspective what they're trying to do of like establishing the tone right away of here's the this is the guy. He's the guy. <laughs> this here's is the Joey. Guy. He's going to defend the belt. <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah. He's going to protect the galaxy. Do you think uh, uh do you think that while well, this is happening like in the United States or whatever uh on the other side of the world there's some people that are bored in Daniara? And heading to Mars to escape planet Earth. God, that's that's the type of shit I live for is the possibility of something like that happening. <laughs> like run into each other. They're, they're, they're the others. Remember on Lost when they meet the others? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the family's physician, Dr. Zachary Smith, a sedition spy, sabotages the ship's onboard robot before launch, but is betrayed by his cohorts and left unconscious as the ship launches and the family enters cryosleep. The robot activates and begins to destroy the navigation and guidance systems en route to destroying the family. Smith awakens. This is Gary Oldman, by the way. So just picture... Uh, a bit of a skinnier Gary Oldman with a shaved head goatee, though, doing all this. Smith awakens the Robinsons and West, who manages to subdue the robot, but the ship is falling uncontrollably into the sun, forced to use the experimental hyperdrive. With an unplotted course, the ship is transported through hyperspace to a remote planet in an uncharted part of the universe. Left out of that little uh, summation, that description there, is the fact that they pull a Phoenix saga and fly through the fucking sun. <laughs> <laughs> the technology it's the future uh i love that you know where that summation ends it's, it's literally that shot of like the family like it's going around the family and then it gets to Lacey chabert and she goes we are lost dot 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 and nobody finishes the titular line which i just give mad props <laughs> to whoever had the, the balls to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, just leave it there they've been wanting more uh so 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 what a cast. I mean, like roll call, right? Like Gary Oldman as sort of the villain in the in the movie, which is probably I, I would say it's my favorite kind of old man, the the villain, Gary Oldman. Oh, he's he's having a good time here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen him be heroic. We're we're big fans of the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, uh-huh. But but he's obviously more in his element when he's playing Dracula or uh 
what's the name in the, the fifth element? Zorg? Yeah, I, I can't remember. I just remember he starts like leaking motor oil from his head at one point when fucking Debo's yelling at him over the phone. <laughs> yes. Or uh, when he's playing uh, Churchill. <laughs> when he's playing really dark characters. That's when he Sid excels. Vicious. There you go. Yeah. You're your beloved uh, Sid and Nancy. Um, so yeah, that that's already like a pillar of uh, excellent acting. Gary Oldman. Uh, Academy Award winner William Hurt. Is as the father figure, the the leader of this family, and then Matt LeBlanc, like the third wheel here, like the, the third angle, the triangle of acting. The fact that this movie gives us that combination, like that you have scenes where it's like LeBlanc v Hurt, LeBlanc v Oldman, it, it's just, uh, I mean, you'd never see it again. <laughs> if if you want to see that, you have to watch Lost in Space. You're not gonna find it anywhere else. I guess I guess you can see a preview of the old man uh, LeBlanc thing and that episode of Friends, but it's not the same as seeing them actually face off like guns out uh, in this movie. Do you uh, uh, Heather Graham too? Yeah, well, that was that was what I was going to ask you. Do you feel like this movie might have been overloaded with testosterone in a way that we can appreciate, but also in a way that could have maybe turned off? Uh, part of the audience because you're right they have you know Mimi Rogers Heather Graham Lacey Chabert all three great actresses but they're kind of overshadowed because the the you know this is a, a movie that's based on a tv show from the 60s so back before like the the gender revolution and I don't think there's anything bad with seeing it we having a movie where like Gary Oldman William Hurt and Matt LeBlanc are like the main focus but it could also much like the show Friends it kind of ages poorly uh, mm-hmm. So do you think that they got their like the raw end of the deal, and that might have also affected the, the way that the uh, do you think that the actresses got the raw end of the deal here, and uh, that might have affected how the movie was received? Not really, because Lacey Chabert like invents YouTube. Like we find out that <laughs> she's like an influencer before that shit existed. So I think her character kind of gets a a nice twinge. I I will say Heather Graham does not get much of anything to do in this besides. You know, she's a doctor in a few scenes, and she's there to provide the love story with Matt LeBlanc. And Mimi Rogers, who plays Maureen, is uh, unfortunately not showcased too much. She does do um, one of my very missed uh, 90s housewife things of where she gets mad and stern with William Hurt. So she uh, folds her robe over and pulls it tighter on herself to, like, express... (laughs) how frustrated she is with the situation. Uh, I I see where you're going. It's just, it's unfortunately, it's a natural cause and effect of what's going to happen when you load your film with A-listers. You got 1998, you got a person from Friends and Gary Oldman in the same movie. I mean, come on. And neither of them are the lead. Yeah, I, I think, I, I believe that uh, uh, Mimi Rogers, Lee Shaber, and Heather Graham walked into this project with eyes wide open. They knew what was what the score was. It's like it's Joey from Friends. So that's there goes fifty percent of the attention. Then you have you know an Oscar winner and one of the weirdest, most acclaimed actors uh, <laughs> of that generation. So yeah, it was it was gonna be rough. I I actually think that they they here's the thing that I I think a lot of people missed, and that is that the Robinsons are all really smart. Like, it's a really smart family. Every single character 
every single member of the family is smart. It's not just Will. Like, okay, so Will's the genius because he's so young. But like you said, Heather Graham is the doctor. And uh, 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 Mimi Rogers seems to know about as much of the ship and everything as, as William Hurt. It's just that they don't get the spotlight but they're always in the background making shit happen so i thought that was refreshing because usually you would think that they would fracture the family to be more stereotypically different right but here even though they all have their quirks the one thing that you can say about the robinsons is that they're all intellectuals and that they're and they're not even pretentious intellectuals they're just uh very hands-on intellectuals like this family can actually take care of itself and and that's pretty cool like it's you know matt leblanc who's the outsider uh is the one that's kind of more like the beefcake action hero, but but that's fine because that's where you get the contrast, you know, not not within the family. So that's cool, and I, I like that you have, you know, maybe the the female characters don't get the spotlight, but they're also when when you see them, they're doing things that normally you wouldn't expect them to to do. Like they're they're never like damsels in distress, any of them, and they're never uh, kind of relegated to waiting for the guys to take care of business. They're always like working on something on their own. So. It's a shame, though, that that's apparently not appreciated by, by most people that watch this movie. If this is all a dream, why can't there be more girls? All right, so we have the main players covered here, and I think it's time we need to discuss Jack Johnson, who plays Will Robinson, uh, a young kid here who... Uh, Julio, you know, this wasn't all going to be sunshine and rainbows. Tell me what you think about Jack Johnson's performance in this, because I think it'd be easy to you know, Jacob Lloyd, this kid and be like, man, <laughs> this kid is really annoying and not good. Um, lambast him even, but you know, even if you don't like it, I feel you just kind of have to endure it for about 30 seconds at a time. And then you're back to William Hurt, Matt LeBlanc, Gary Ullman, Heather Graham, you know, someone of higher stature. What What's your, your take here on young Will? Uh, well, number one, he's better than Miko Hughes, which is always like the, the first comparison that I, the measuring stick exactly on, on the lower tier. Yeah, he's he's better than Miko Hughes, and he is not, you know, he's never asked to carry the movie in the way that Miko Hughes was. So, so he's good there. Also, I mean, it took a little bit to get used to it because, yeah, especially someone like me, like I have trouble with like the 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 trope of the the super smart kid, like the genius kid, what they call him, prodigy, uh, in this movie, but. And then he earns my respect. He becomes a robot in a way. First he becomes a robot, then he recreates a robot and and basically creates life. So he he lives up to the hype. They call him a genius and he turns out to be a genius. Much later in the movie, he actually invents time travel. <laughs> so and and I think that maybe if the acting is not up to snuff with everybody else in the cast, at least the, the heart of the character is relatable because the the core idea for for his arc and William Hurt's arc is just that this kid is just trying to get his father's attention. <laughs> so here's this genius just really overachieving time and again so that he can get a pat on the back from his dad. And that is relatable. You know, that that is something very human that you can connect to. So, yes. He he wasn't gonna win any Oscars. He's not Haley Joel Osment, but I think he did what was necessary in this movie. Yeah, and he turns the robot into like I guess what the robot of uh, yesteryear was remembered for in the show, and uh, programs them to be his friend, that type of thing. It's actually pretty heartwarming. Uh, but they continue exploring this 
side of the galaxy, the universe they're on. At one point in the film, I wrote down, they say uh, 98% of space is uncharted. And I was thinking to myself, that's probably accurate. That's pretty terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they come across a ship that they're not entirely familiar with. They begin exploring it. Uh, and uh, this is where the CG starts to kind of wane in some parts. But uh, I did take note. It's pretty clear as they're going through this and like this ship that has vegetation growing in it and whatnot. There are some real full sets they're using, which is pretty fucking cool. We Man, now that I you're saying vegetation, I just because I was gonna make another Niara joke, but actually that might be Chris Pratt's ship from Passengers. Oh, I see. Yeah. Just Andy Garcia comes out and what are you doing on my ship? Well, no, they find like dead Andy Garcia, like he was eaten by the spiders or whatever. That's right. They're not aliens, but these spider creatures come out and they, you know, time to eat. They go after the, <laughs> the humans that are trying to get back onto the ship. The robot does what it can to help fend them off. Julio, Joey from Friends becomes Iron Man. Um, <laughs> I was trying to remember what it is I remember that was featured on all the TV spots for this. It was that clip of this metal helmet forming around his head. That was like in all of the TV spots, you know, the, the images you would see in magazines and shit like that. So what's going on here? Do they explain <laughs> what happens? If they did, I missed it. Well, he, before he becomes Iron Man, he like, he assembles a rifle. So I think like the, the helmet is part of the rifle uh, combo. Um, oh, okay. You know, because he, he opens his suitcase and he's, he's quipping, because, you know, he's the one with the one-liners in this movie and he's saying something about how like, I have all the weapons in the world and what I would really like is a can of Raid. And while he's saying this, he's assembling his, sniper rifle or whatever and then the last step of the assembly is getting that helmet on which is pretty badass this is the the second major set piece in the movie right you had the opening which also featured joey like you know doing some some space flying and then now here like the attack of the spiders which you gotta give him props a sequence like this it would be so easy for it to basically become a knockoff version of aliens you know any alien movie where like you had a swarm of aliens or whatever creatures coming after you but somehow it doesn't and i think that this is one of those instances where the casting of uh matt leblanc is beneficial because you one of the things that makes this sequence distinctive is what you were saying that is like joey from friends in an action set piece so you don't really connect to anything else that they might be referencing you just focus on the fact that he's there and he's kicking ass and then you know the the second thing is that the, this thing with the robot that the kid is the kid is the robot which i thought was pretty clever because dude again, that was I'm such not... a huge thing in the 90s like that was like the way to make kids invested in it like make it like you can you know see what this kid's doing so it could be like you and you know make it look like his kid he's playing a video game or something <laughs> Yeah, but also the way that he he speaks through the robot, so he keeps telling uh, William Hurt, like, hey, mom says that you need to hurry up. God. <laughs> that was, because that's, again, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that that ever happens in the show. Like, the show, the robot is always, like, the robot that you see at the end of this movie. So I thought it was a very clever way to transition, you know, from this robot was like an evil Alexa that almost killed him, to now this robot is like a vessel for this kid's intellect. And then eventually by the end of the movie, this robot has been reborn, recreated by the kid. And now he's uh, a good guy. So 
yeah, it could have been a very generic action sequence, but actually I thought it was pretty pretty entertaining, very impressive and, and unique in its own way. Because they also have a this where they pick up that that little alien creature. Yeah, is it Blarf? I'm trying to remember what they call it. <laughs> Blarp, maybe? Blarp, yep. A camouflaging creature Penny calls Blarp, along with evidence suggesting the ship is from the future. Yeah, they tested this hyperdrive and it might have sent them into a, a different period in time, a different reality. Yes, they uh, they find a voicemail from uh, Lenny James. Do you uh, <laughs> do you know Lenny James from anything else? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, you've seen Snatch. He's one of the guys in Snatch. The, oh uh, wait, this is the guy. I'm sorry, the name threw me for a second there. He's the guy that's like the the friend with Joey in the beginning of the movie. The right, right, right. And then yeah, you know, they yeah. find his message, and he's much older because they're in the future. <laughs> so yeah. That yeah, that's what freaks him out. Yeah. yeah, he's. Uh, I like Lenny James, and I when I saw him in the beginning of the movie, I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is this is it. This was Lenny James before he blew up and was a well known actor. Uh, so I was thrilled that he comes back for a little bit in the movie for for an actual bit of plot development. So he has the fucking uh, Idris Elba reveal from um, Star Trek Beyond. It's just like in that <laughs> grainy footage, and it was you. <laughs> They crash their ship on what appears to be Hoth, uh, but as we get <laughs> as we get there, we learn it's just it's all fucked up because yeah, they've bent time and space itself, and they're lost in space at this point. It's not even space; it's time also that they're lost in. Yeah, that would have been uh, too long of a title, so they had to shorten it. <laughs> While they were escaping the ship, Gary Oldman was attacked. He was bit, or um, you know poked or stung or something by one of the those giant spiders that they were unfamiliar with and he's having a hard time with it he's just like he's scratching it you can see that his suit's been perforated and his skin is looking kind of weird around the point of uh, impact the the abrasion so he's not doing too good uh, uh, speaking of a, not do- he's a doctor but he keeps picking at it which is how you know for as smart as he is i'm glad that they gave him that flaw of not being able to see the problems that are like right under his nose it, i guess granted it's his back that he got the scratch on but still you know a doctor the first thing they tell you is like wash that thing off put a band-aid on it hydrogen peroxide <laughs> if it burns it's good neosporin or some aquaphor at least you know just get a dressing on it but uh joey don west isn't doing much better because he's trying to close the deal with heather graham and it's just not working i mean we see here uh, things i always love of how in film and television when it's exposed just how fucking easy it is for women to manipulate men it's all just like making doe eyes at them and you know saying come hither which she does and then leads to her dumping a glass of water on joey's head just making him look like an idiot so that might have been something too that audiences weren't ready for we're used to joey scoring with all the gals (laughs) on uh in new york city on friends and here he can't you know there's only one other single girl in the the altered time that they've traveled through and he can't even close the deal with her. <laughs> he he pulls out all stops too. He uh, he uses uh, Looney Tune cartoons to try to, to seduce her. You know, he draws the, the Porky Pig constellation and the, the Bugs Bunny constellation. Nothing. Heather Graham is too smart for that. Why don't you just hang on to your joystick? So Don and John... Don West, John Robinson, they're going to go explore and figure out what's going on. They they find the shimmer. They find this uh, <laughs> area that they go through. It's just and they travel through time and they find themselves on the same planet, but far into the future, probably 
based on some of the aesthetics, I think, what, 20, 30 years in the future? I think it's 20, because at some point, uh, old Will says, you left 20 years ago. That's right, because they eventually stumble across some of the wreckage uh, from you know this mission gone awry, and they find Will, his son, who's all grown up now and looks like a fucking crazy conspiracy theorist. <laughs> He's played by Jared Harris, which if anybody who's watched Mad Men knows Jared Harris as the the British stuffy guy that that comes as part of the the British takeover of the agency and uh, fuck I can't remember his name, but but he's great in Mad Men and uh, here not a trace of his British accent. Did you did you know that he was British? No, but my sister who watched the tail end of this with me explained that he's also from uh he's a lawyer in the television show Chernobyl or something like that. Yes. Yeah. But in Chernobyl, I'm pretty sure he's, he's using his British accent. Yeah, I think so. Lane, Lane and Madman. That's who he is. Jared Francis Harris. Yeah. There's not much more of a British name than that. Well, he looks like an American bum in this movie. Oh yeah. He, he looks uh... like a bum Jules. He's a fucking bum. They got a name for that. <laughs> bum. So, okay, help me out here. Is this an alternate dimension or is it the future? I was trying to figure that out because it has to be an alternate future, an alternate dimension, because otherwise Spider Smith would be loopering himself when he when he tries to kill present day Smith. You know what I mean? So it has to be that whatever they do to their past selves doesn't really affect the future. So it has to be a an alternate dimension, not the future. Because otherwise, you know, because I was thinking, well, why don't they, I mean, this would never happen, but what if William Hurt shot Little Will? And would that automatically kill or make, you know, old Will disappear? Because, you know, you're killing the past, so the future wouldn't happen. So along that line of thought, like if, uh, if you know, the big monster dr smith were to kill uh, the original dr smith like he tries to do then wouldn't he be putting his own existence in in danger so it has to be an alternate dimension that makes sense as julio mentioned yeah we get i I put mecca oldman but (laughs) it's like an alternate version of what happened to him with that spider bite and just like overtakes his body doesn't it look doesn't it look like it looks like general grievous at first Okay, General Grievous with the face of the lawnmower man at the very end, like the final incarnation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is definitely uh, lawnmower man vibes here. And he's pregnant. That he is. He gets a C-section here from fucking William Hurt. (laughs) But human Gary Oldman, Smith, tricks this dumb fucking kid into letting him out of his prison cell because, you know, they make him help, but they keep him in this holding cell the whole time because he is, you know, treasonous. And so he convinces his kid to like let him out, and they'll go find shit together. And it goes wrong. He like holds the kid at gunpoint, and they end up stumbling across the ship here, where they find Matt LeBlanc and William Hurt, and the Spider Gary Oldman, the Mecha Oldman, just beats the shit out of his you know human self. And he says, "I never liked me anyway," which I thought was a pretty good line. <laughs> um, There's a really good moment before they get to that. Before they, you know join this group when it's just Gary Oldman and uh, Little Will kind of like walking around looking for Robinson and uh, Don West. Don West. Don West. Where Gary Oldman stumbles across the three gravestones of uh, uh, Will's mom 
and his two sisters. And he stops them before he comes and, and sees them, which I thought was kind of a a sweet moment for his character because he's he's an asshole and he's very selfish and you know he's acting out of uh, self preservation the entire time. But in this moment, I think Gary Oldman is such a good actor that I could actually I sense that he was also just trying to protect the kid. You know, he doesn't need to see that they're in this future where clearly his his family has been murdered or they've died. Uh, so it was it was a nice like humanizing touch. I, I think that you know this from what I gather, this version of the Doctor Smith character is a lot darker, more evil than the one in the show. But they still gave him like that one moment where it looks like oh well you know he's not a complete monster. He's he's trying to spare the kid from from some pain. Yeah, and he leads him to the ship here, and th- this is where like everything just all out chaos unfolds. Because Future Will has programmed the robot to, you know, crush, kill, destroy. And Young Will, you know, he understands his voice because he's able to kind of override it. It looks like this robot's going to self-emulate for a second. Uh, (laughs) It looks like this robot's going to self-destruct for a second. But, you know, powers through and removes his chip, so it just kind of powers him down. And then, yeah... Mecca Oldman takes his cloak off and he's a fucking spider human. And I don't mean like Spider-Man. Like he's got eight <laughs> limbs and shit and it's crazy. Uh, and he gets into a fight with uh, William Hurt who uses his kid's science fair first <laughs> prize to lance open his the spider womb and all these spiders come out and eat Gary Oldman. It's a, it's a lot happens in a very short period of time. <laughs> Well, that's that's how every every movie climax should be. At least, you know, if you're talking about a big blockbuster, this this is what we pay the big bucks for, and just to be overloaded with excitement. And yeah, because you have William Hurt fighting the the big spider Smith, but then at the same time, the portal, the time travel portal, is already open. And uh, before before he fights William Hurt, the spider Smith has thrown the older version of of Will down that hole right and he's just hanging from the, like a mere few inches from the from the portal and then William Hurt has told Joey from friends to just run away take take uh Will and go to the to the ship because he's going to stay and fight and you know they basically it's the passing of the torch he tells him uh my family has a better chance of survival if you're the one that makes it back to the ship not me which is a huge moment because one of the running themes throughout the movie is that the constant dick measuring contest that's been going on between Matt LeBlanc and uh, and William Hurt. That's the kind of epic conflict we all want to see, but but it needed to come to a head here. And it's with William Hurt being the bigger person, saying accepting that you know what they need is an action hero, not not a what's he call him a not an egghead like uh, like Matt LeBlanc keeps calling him uh, in the movie. So. Yeah, lots of big moments. Those are lots of like exciting stuff, uh, and they keep cutting back to the ship. And you know, the women are doing their thing, and they're figuring out the algorithms. And uh, Heather Graham shoots a flare. <laughs> yeah, to signal where they are. And you were talking about earlier about the women being overshadowed. This is definitely their moment to shine, because without them, you know, nothing would have gotten back to normal. Yeah, there's uh, actually or the... nothing would have been ready. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, there's actually the best moment in the movie belongs to a woman it's uh when mimi rogers walks in on uh, matt leblanc and william hurt arguing about something and she just 
she lays down the law and tells them that if they keep it up, she's going to have Heather Graham declare them unfit, and then she's going to take over as leader. <laughs> that is the most badass moment in the movie. <laughs> she didn't even have to put the Iron Man armor to, to do that. She just walked in, said her piece, walked out. So... Don West and Smith and young Will head back to the ship while William Hurt stays behind. He hangs back and, you know, reconciles with his older son at this point, apologizes for not being there, that type of thing. And he just watches them attempt to take off, and they're unable to do so. Uh, You know, debris hits the ship and blows it up, and Hurt just kind of watches it happen. Uh, now, meanwhile, did you, did you think that that was it, Alex, when it happened? Were you like, well, kind fuck. of? I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's pretty surprising. Now, in this abandoned ship where older Will lives, he had been spending the past 20 years building a, a portal to travel through time with, and he finally got to where one person could travel back through time. He sees all that John's lost and tells him, you know, it's going to, it needs to be you. Just don't take so long to tell me how you feel, you know, after they make up and, he pushes his dad to the time portal, which takes him back like what ten minutes, five minutes, or is it back to a different dimension? I I couldn't tell here. <laughs> it takes him right to where he needs to go to to save the day, and he does as he assembles the crew. The family's so glad to see him back. You know, they have this family moment. This is where Joey gets to really shine because he delivers like Joey Tribbiani through and through. He <laughs> says, "the The planet is collapsing around us." And- <laughs> So, hey, yo. <laughs> so John, the goes, John goes and takes the co-pilot seat next to him and they uh he's like we're not gonna have enough power to get out of here and he's like we don't go up we go down through the planet and then in a really weird delivery he says we use the gravity <laughs> to get us through the planet and- was william hurt trying to uh Either rise or lower himself to uh, Matt LeBlanc's level. I I don't know what happened here. I don't know what happens for the rest of this movie. Because the planet does break apart. They fly through it. They get out to open space. uh, And since the planet's crumbling, it's basically turning into a black hole. And its gravitational pull gets to them. And they decide the best course for evasive action is to use the hyperdrive again. We'll just send them to a different possibly dimension or period in time to, to a very certain sequel or i guess it wasn't certain <laughs> well it was supposed to be everyone signed on for three movies on this um and lacey chaubert hits us with here we go again <laughs> and <laughs> she's there for the trailer moments <laughs> oh yeah god bless her for it and they go to hyperdrive and then we get closing credits that are possibly the most tonally inconsistent closing <laughs> credits i've ever seen with a film but they're amazing. Did you think of Mortal oh, yeah. Kombat? It's kind of with the music, but also just the late nineties like strobe effects and shit. It looks like a commercial for the Dreamcast. <laughs> but it's all like every I don't know, ten, fifteen seconds there's a quote from the movie. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's something. <laughs> I hope it's on Spotify. <laughs> and then after the credits, Samuel L. Jackson comes out. He's like, You think y'all only been the ones lost in space? <laughs> Julio, is this movie infamous? Would you use that word to describe it? Maybe if you're a Lost in Space fan. If you're a... I mean, I remember it as a movie that happened. I wonder if you're like a diehard, like a a diehard Matt LeBlanc fan. Like, is this this heartbreaking? 
or is this a point of pride? <laughs> Listeners, well, if there's any of you out there is a Matt LeBlanc fan, like how do you regard Lost in Space? Because I have my thoughts, and you, you'll you'll hear those along with Alex's uh, in the second part. But I kind of get the feeling that you know we don't belong to probably the two main audiences that this movie was directed to: Matt LeBlanc fans and Lost in Space fans. We are neither of those. So does our opinion matter? <laughs> so, ch- so chat us up. <laughs> yes. Are you are you ready for real talk, Alex? I am, but just to put a pin on it, this is the type of shit that I miss so much. I, it, this still could happen. I don't fucking know. But it just like it takes me back to a warm time of my childhood when we, film studios put on their posters like anything except releasing or coming out on. So this movie was launching on April 8th, 1998. <laughs> <laughs> April 18th, lose yourself. Excuse me, April 3rd. The The poster is a bit blurry and faded, but uh, yeah. Hey, yeah, it should have just been on April 3rd, get lost in space. And then just a picture of Joey. <laughs> I, right, have one, I have one final theory that I forgot to bring up, Alex, Okay, yeah. uh, which is that, forget Anyara. What we're watching when we watch Lost in Space is probably the biggest, most high-profile project that joey tribbiani was part of because he's an actor in the show Ooh. he always goes and you see like bits and pieces of movies that he works on or commercials or whatever and his big thing was like he was on a uh soap opera right yes yeah yeah he's yeah. you know he's in the young and the restless i think for you know several seasons so not to get too much into real talk but i think that the acting style that he displays as joey in the show friends whenever we see him in a project is not too far removed from the acting style that he employs in Lost in Space, the movie. So maybe there is like a meta, like, you know, Hopkins Some and 40 Volpen. chess right there, baby. Yeah, I mean, they they were covering all their bases. So it's, it's possible. Kira Goldsman, if you are listening to this, would love to get your input on this fan theory. <laughs> let's get it trending. Uh, all right, now, now let's go to real talk. Let's do... Danger. Warning. Warning, Major West. My sensors indicate we have a problem. 